I doubt there's anyone who, anyone present that is, who hasn't heard of the Good Samaritan. It's right up there with the story of the prodigal son, I imagine. In terms of notoriety within our culture and certainly within Christian culture, Typing Good Samaritan into my search engine brought 25 million hits, over 25 million hits. As you know, among other references, it serves as the name of many medical institutions and a wide variety of Christian organizations devoted to helping others. It's an important parable, a very important parable one that every would-be follower of Jesus should know well, especially as it follows up this great law to love. In a sense, he told the parable as an explanation of what it meant to love. And by way of understanding the parable's challenging meaning, this being Bastille Day, you notice it's Bastille Day, right? You know, the Alliance Francaise is right across the street here, and the French Episcopal Church is just across the street. So this is French Alley, we might say, and this always becomes the location of the Bastille Day celebration, their celebration of French independence. And given that, actually, it came to me to remember the story of the village of Le Chambon-sur-Lignon, It's a story that uh, I have always thought every American Christian ought to know. It shines a bright light on how we're to understand Jesus' radical call to love. Primarily a town of French Protestants, the village of Le Chambon-sur-Lignon became a haven for Jews fleeing the Nazis during World War II. If you draw on your memory from history class back in the day, whenever that was, you might remember that early on, Hitler's advance on Europe, in that advance, France became a vassal state of Germany and a sympathetic government was formed. Over the course of the war, it's estimated that French collaborators delivered around 83,000 Jews to the Nazis, including 10,000 children. You know, as I was refreshing my memory on the statistics here, it's, it's startling. Sometimes statistics, large statistics like that, kind of whiz by in such a way that we can't grab onto them. But Ordinary French citizens during that time frame delivered 83,000 Jews, including 10,000 children. Even now, it's the distance of seven decades. It's hard to make sense of the numbers and even harder to make sense how the vast number of ordinary persons who collaborated in this mass transfer Everyday people, just like you and me. 
But Le Chambon Chalignon defied the Nazi regime and French government and over the course of the occupation took in 5,000 Jews, as many as the entire village population. Most homes and farms held strangers, not just for days, but for years. So deep was the villagers' humanity that it is believed that no resident ever turned away, denounced, or betrayed a single refugee. There is no record of that. They helped provide forged identity documents and ration cards and helped the Jews over the border to safety in Switzerland. Another way to say this is that they routinely broke the law. Just hang on to that idea. Such large-scale resistance was known to the Nazis, but whenever patrols came to the village, word spread and villagers hustled the Jews into the nearby woods. One of the Chambonais later recalled, as soon as the soldiers left, we would go into the forest and sing a song. And when they heard the song, the Jews knew it was safe to come home. This subterfuge was led by the village pastor, Andre Trachme, and his wife, Magda. Under their leadership, villagers acted on their conviction that it was their duty to help their neighbors in need. They did not attempt to convert them. They simply saved them. Eventually, some of these residents were arrested by the Gestapo, including the cousin of Andre Trachme, his cousin Daniel, who was subsequently put to death in a concentration camp. Loving their neighbors in this radical manner was a dangerous proposition. After the roundup and deportation of Jews in Paris in 1942, Pastor Trachme delivered a sermon to his parishioners and said this, the Christian church should drop to its knees and beg pardon of God for its present incapacity and cowardice. Why did he say that? Because the church was largely collaborative with government. Once the war came to an end and the villagers' activities became known, they the Chambonnet rejected any labeling of their behavior as heroic. They said, quote, things had to be done and we happened to be there to do them. It was the most natural thing in the world. Things had to be done. We happened to be there it was the most natural thing in the world. Now, you know, there are other sorts of stories we could share with one another, stories on a smaller scale perhaps, who would also model how Jesus' teaching can become embedded within the hearts and minds of his followers. Actually, you know, that's our tendency. We tend to make radical stories like the Good Samaritan smaller than they actually are, so we can sort of tailor them to our needs, perspectives, attitudes, and points of view. That's what our tendency is. 
But for me, the story of Le Chambon sur Lignon stands out within modern Christian history. I think it bears repeating, internalizing, and teaching our children. Stories like this one, which are real, about real courage and how to love, need to be taught to our kids. Because the parable of the Good Samaritan has a tendency to become so sentimentalized as to lose the true scope of the love Jesus lived and taught. As we said, love can be reduced to a kind of schmaltzy lesson about treating people we know decently. Which isn't bad, of course. But the real stakes in the story are made clearer when quoting the Chambonnet. Things had to be done, and we happened to be there to do them. It was the most natural thing in the world to help these people. Considering the duplicity and complicity of much of the Christian world, not to mention government and the incredible risk involved, this simple response seems to defy reason, actually, because, after all, even in our doing good, we want to be reasonable about it, don't we? I mean, let's be reasonable. Our love can only go so far. Consider the lawyer's intention in quizzing Jesus. You know, the real setup to the parable comes when Luke says that the lawyer wanted to justify himself. Oh my, does that ring a bell? Anybody here ever want to justify him or herself? He wanted to justify himself with his question, who is my neighbor? In other words, he wanted to know the exact limits of the meaning of the word neighbor. And clearly, he thinks there are limits. There are clearly limits to the word neighbor. Thus, the need to justify his position on the matter. And we could surmise that what he's after is a debate about the finer points of the legal system, a debate that leaves him well satisfied that he's got it about right. If you happen to be a lawyer or have ever worked with one, you know how this might go. It goes perhaps like this, in the words of Frederick Buechner. He reasoned that the lawyer in our story was looking for a legal outcome that sounded something like this. A neighbor, hereinafter referred to as the party of the first part, is to be construed as a person of Jewish descent whose residence is within a radius of three statute miles of one's own residence, hereinafter referred to as the party of the second part, unless another person of Jewish descent lives between the party of the first part and the party of the second part, in which case the intervening person shall be considered the neighbor to the party of the first part, hence relieving the party of the second part of any responsibility whatsoever. Instead of debating, Jesus told a story. Isn't that interesting? That had nothing to do with the legal system. And everything to do with grace. 
Or we could put it this way. There was only one two-part law that transcended everything else. Love God with your whole being. Love your neighbor as yourself. But this law was not subject to legal analysis, only the response that love dictated. And if this love was embraced and internalized, it would wind up expressed in words like those of the villagers in Le Chambon sur Lignon. Things had to be done. We happened to be there to do them. It was the most natural thing in the world to help these people. We could hear the Samaritan in our story saying something just like that had a reporter shown up at the inn to ask him about his motives in coming to the aid of the stranger on the side of the road. The lawyer in our story would not have understood this kind of response, this sort of behavior. He was locked into a much smaller frame of reference. One that he needed to justify to himself. Indeed, Jesus himself was ultimately not understood or maybe understood only too well to be embraced. For his sort of love would upend the prescribed order of things, considering all the ways he expounded on the theme, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In first century Palestine, the lawyer was among the first. The Samaritan was among the last. Let's be reminded that the Samaritans, the backdrop of this story is that the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. That this outsider is the one extending the aid to the Jew is a radical aspect of the story with both the privileged priest and Levite passing on the other side of the road. Note Jesus does not say why they passed by. Surely they had a good solid reason, maybe a legal reason, probably a legal reason, or maybe they feared for their lives. Suppose it was a trap, or suppose it was someone other than a Jew, someone outside their tribe, some dreaded other. Of course, by the time of the Second World War, it's the Jews who are largely beyond the range of neighborliness in Western civilization. There is very much to be said about the American silence pertaining to the Holocaust as it unfolded, as it evolved in Europe, rooted in what I'm going to tell you was and is an endemic bias within Christian culture expressly because it was Christians who brought on the Holocaust. Isn't that interesting 
that those of us, the, the tradition that has the story of the Good Samaritan, the story that has the teaching of the greatest commandment to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves, should find ourselves so corrupted in justifying our interpretation of love to our own corrupt ends. It's confusing, isn't it? It's confusing. Of course, this episode with the Jews wasn't the first time so-called Christian culture failed to learn Jesus' radical lessons. About 20 years ago now, I had a startling awakening about our collective tendency to miss the obvious. Turning my perspective inside out, actually. A large team from Christ Church had traveled to Ghana, West Africa to build homes with a new partner we had formed there. At one point in our travels, we visited the slave castles on the so-called Gold Coast of Africa. These were the points of embarkation of the transatlantic slave trade where millions were bound and held prisoner crammed into dank cells. I have a searingly vivid memory. It's a visceral memory, actually, of standing in the chapel of one of the castles when a cold chill swept through me as I realized the floor of the chapel was the ceiling of the men's dungeon. In a flash, it occurred to me that the story of the Good Samaritan was read in that chapel. And the confusing question, how is that possible? Inscribed on the chapel wall, I wrote it down, was a verse from Psalm 132, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. And if you look that up, if you look that psalm up, you'll find that the passage continues with these words. This is my resting place forever. I will abundantly bless its provisions. I will satisfy its poor with bread. I still get a physical response when I tell you this story. It remains one of the most powerful metaphors of my ministry. Had I thought of it at the time, I might have remembered to share the story there of Le Chambon sur Lignon and Pastor Trocmé's words, the Christian church should drop to its knees and beg pardon of God for its incapacity and cowardice. Because after all, slavery was a Christian project in the West. 
we begin to see the enormity of the stakes in our beloved parable this morning. It runs the gamut from how we're going to spend this afternoon (laughs) all the way through our family life and community life and church life all the way up through our social systems and structures. It led the Chambonnet to break the law for the sake of saving the Jews. So it has personal, spiritual, social, cultural, and political ramifications. The ramifications are staggering if you allow yourself the privilege of contemplating (laughs) this parable. It's breathtaking. And you begin to understand how it was that Jesus was put to death himself. It begins to, the tumblers click into place. Still, the law of love stands, and what a glory it is. What an astonishing glory, and what a call. Do you feel the call of this? Message to love as God loves? Do you feel it sort of dignifying your life, your perspective, and the lives of those around you? It strikes at the heart of our essential commitments as persons who claim to be followers of the way Jesus walked. It prompts us to consider the sort of community we wish to become. Our community here in church, our community in our homes and families, our community as a nation. Here's what I hope. I hope and pray that increasingly we become the sort of family that does the work of love Jesus inspires. Remember, after the lawyer gave the correct answer about loving God and neighbor, Jesus said, do this and you will live. That is to say, do this and there will be life. I yearn for all of us to have this inscribed within our hearts so that like the Chambonnet, our response to having provided courageous and generous loving care anywhere to anyone would be like theirs. Well, things had to be done and we happened to be there. It was the most natural thing in the world. I want to leave that hanging right there. 